Me in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, if you're using the blue ESV Bible, that's on page 571. 571, Isaiah chapter 6. And we continue in our series this morning with a sermon entitled, I Know You Are, But What Am I? And our keywords for our worshipers in training are hearing, seeing, and hearts. <clears throat> I've always been entertained by people who are very good at imitations. People who can hear someone else speak and how they speak and they can hear what they sound like and pay attention to all of the ways that they talk and then they get the facial movements and the vocal inflections and the little pauses and nuances that, that people use and they get all that down and then they're able to sound like them when they do their impression. We've all tried to do that probably. Maybe you don't want to admit that, but all of us have tried to sound like someone else and we all have our, our favorites. Most people have a Christopher Walken or a Sean Connery or a Donald Trump or a Bill Clinton impression. You might try it out in front of the mirror. But there's a, there's a certain humor that comes with people's ability to sound like someone else. But have you ever noticed that sometimes our impressions of other people are less intentional. Have you ever noticed when you, you or, or someone near you starts to ad adapt the accent of someone else or some people that you're spending time around who have very strong accents themselves? For example, if you've ever traveled to a place like Ireland or, or Scotland, there's a pretty good chance that within a few days you're going to start pronouncing words or using phrases a little bit differently than when you got there. Now, some people do this more often than others, but it's actually a phenomenon called wandering accent. There's a certain someone, I won't name any names, but they live in my household and moved to Georgia about 15 years ago, that narrows it down at all, who didn't have any kind of accent at all, but now has some words and phrases that will out-southern anyone any day of the week. But why does that happen? Linguists have studied the wandering accent for a long time, and they've, they have various theories about why we do this. Interestingly, musicians are people who are most likely to be affected by this, and it's believed because they're, they're more t attuned to things like cadence and, and tone and the rhythm of how we speak. A musical person will hear the speech patterns, and they'll pick up on them, and it's more easy for them to mimic those things. And if you think about that, it makes sense. When we, when we pause or there's a, there's a lilt in a phrase that we, we speak, it's sort of musical. Another reason for a wandering accent is what it's, what's called the chameleon effect. And that operates for two reasons. First, because we're trying to be in tune with other people. We want to identify with those that we're, we're talking to. And that's an, a mechanism that innately draws us near to them. But it's also something that we tend to do uh, so that we're, we don't feel isolated. If we, if we sound completely different from others that are surrounding us, we, we start to feel like we're isolated. And we actually have uh, what scientists call mirror neurons. And they have the explicit duty in our brains to control our interactions so that we start to resemble the people that we're talking to. Now, why would that be important? Well, whether we realize it or not, it helps us to understand others and it helps us to be understood. 
When we imitate an accent, studies have shown that we both understand what the others are saying and they understand us more clearly. And in fact, every study that's ever been done on this shows that no matter how bad your imitation is, no matter how bad your accent is, a person's ability to understand and be understood increases exponentially. But there's also a phenomenon that's baffling to researchers, and it's that there are people who experience severe brain trauma. And sometimes they wake up out of a coma or something like that, and they speak, and it sounds like they have an accent from somewhere else completely. I watched one video of a British woman. She was in a terrible car accident, and she was in a coma for a while, and she woke up and, and now sounds as though she, is, uh, she was originally one who spoke Chinese and now speaks broken English. And what's actually happening for that person is that they're not speaking another accent. They're actually just using syllables differently. And so the rhythm, the pattern of speech changes. And so for everyone else who hears it, they associate it with some geographical location. But for them, that's just how they now speak. It's called foreign accent syndrome. So if you're not in a, if you go, if you travel to a new place and you quickly find yourself surrounded by people who sound different than the way you generally speak, you'll know, you'll know why. You learned something today. Now, every time I go to Nigeria, it's funny to me because I'll encounter American missionaries, and as they come up to me, they generally speak with some kind of accent because they've been there for a while and they've adapted their speaking so that they'll be understood. So they use local words and phrases. They speak very slowly Generally, they have a little bit of a, an accent to what's going on. They've been around that every day, all day long, sometimes for months at a time. And they can't turn it off when they talk to me. Well, why do I bring all this up? Well, as we think about our series about idolatry this morning, we're going to look at something very similar as it relates to imitation. What we're going to see from the Bible this morning is that idol worship leads to imitation. In the words of G.K. Beale, we become what we worship. It's not intentional. It's not even something that we necessarily have happen overnight or maybe over a few weeks, but it happens. The more we draw near, the more we, we spend time with others or, or we spend time going after this thing or this person that we are worshiping, the more we change, the more we imitate, the more we are created in the image of what it is we are after. This, the Bible tells us, is what the Lord is up to in the lives of His people. And the very thing that we, we've prayed, we prayed this morning, that we would become more like Christ. That's what Paul's writing about in Romans 8, that, that God is working all things together for our good. Why? To be conformed to the image of His Son, that we would become more like Christ. And so we take on the very image of Christ the more we commune with Him, the more we worship Him, the more like Him we become, no matter who or what we worship. We take on those characteristics. Worship changes us in significant ways. Worship alters us profoundly, and it's one of the reasons God takes idolatry so seriously. So as we get into the text this morning, into a passage of Scripture, uh, this has both delighted and confounded people for 
many years. The first part of the text you're likely very familiar with, and it's glorious. And I'm so glad we get to look at this this morning. There's many wonderful gems in the first uh, eight verses of this text. But the second part of the text is often very confusing for people. Why does God do things the way He does them in what we'll read? And I'm going to point out this morning from this text that what the Lord is doing is this very thing I'm talking about. He's pointing out that we become like what we worship. But before we get to chapter 6, I want to give us a bit of a run-up to chapter 6. It's important that we get the context. A big picture lead up to chapter 6. Now, if you just read the first four verses, you can imagine that maybe this could have been the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Because you have this sort of call to ministry for for Isaiah. But chapter 6 is where it is for a reason. It's a crucial place in the book of Isaiah because a lot is going on in chapters 1 through 5. And mainly what's going on is the denunciation of Jerusalem and Judea by Isaiah. Up to this point, Isaiah has been in the ministry for quite some time. So what has he done? Well, a few highlights. In chapter 2, verse uh, verse 6, he told the people, You have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Well, that sounds like where we're headed with Western religion today and this infatuation with superstitions of the Far East. That's exactly what was going on in Israel. It's astrology. He goes on to say in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So they're enamored with riches and treasures. They're enamored with all of these things they can make. They're depending on, they're trusting on horses and chariots that will get them through any battle. They're worshiping these things. This is the state of the nation. And then in chapter 3, he says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. And so the Lord is stripping away all of their physical provision. And listen to this, he says, The mighty man and soldier, the judge and prophet, the diviner and elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Now boys will become those who run their nation. In other words, the rulers will become know-nothings. They are incompetent children without any principles whatsoever. There doesn't exist a statesman among them, and so they will become part of God's judgment over this idolatrous nation. And so then by chapter 5, it's as if he hasn't gotten their attention yet. So Isaiah takes out his, well, it wouldn't have been a guitar, his lyre, and he begins to play a song, and he sings a ballad. And it starts out nice. Let me sing a song for my beloved and, and my love song concerning his vineyard. That's how chapter 5 starts. He's, he's drawing a crowd from the music. They're all listening to what he has to say. People may be joining in as he sings the chorus. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
Oh, it sounds beautiful. They're thinking, I really like this jam. I'm going to add it to my Spotify playlist. It's really a good one. However, it keeps going. He's saying here that, that the Lord has this land. He's cleared it. He's planted it with the best grapes. He's cleared out all of the bad. He puts a watchtower in the middle of it to protect everything. He gave them this huge, beautiful vat so that they can make wine of the grapes. And then verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In other words, all of that work for clearing and making ready for the vineyard, it was all for naught. All that came out of it was bad fruit. And then he really goes in on them. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Well, that song just changed. And then at this moment... It's as if he's saying, by the way, if you don't know who I'm talking to, in verse 7 he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then he continues with multiple woes for, for various reasons. Overall, these became a people who were calling evil good and good evil. Everything was turned on its head, and now the Lord is pronouncing judgment upon them. The nation is in a very bad place, and their only earthly hope, the only hope they had, was a man by the name of King Uzziah. And if you read the corresponding accounts of Scripture, Uzziah was a man of remarkable administrative gift. Initially, he was a good man. He was an able administrator. He was a military leader. Judah prospered under his reign. And yet, when you read the account of his final days, he has a very sad downfall. He dies in utter shame. So the one capable administrator, the one man of principle among all of the men, he died in shame. So Israel is wicked. Oppressive Assyria was pushing even closer. They were about to be sacked. And the only able leader they had died in shame. And so it's then that we get to Isaiah chapter 6. Our first point this morning is from verses 1 through 4. And that is the one true God is holy, holy, holy. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So things were bad. 
And it was at this time that the Lord brought Isaiah, his prophet, to see the throne room of the Lord. In, the, in, in that year, when the one guy who they thought would be their help ended up dying in shame, it was at that time that the prophet, a man filled with indignation over sin, was brought to see the glorious throne of God. And these verses are a beautiful recounting from Isaiah of his entrance into the throne room. Just think of the picture, his, his entrance, his, his presence before the Lord in glorious display, worthy of all worship because he alone is holy, holy, holy. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the passage, but it helps to have this, this larger context to understand the full breadth of what's going on here. Most of the time when you hear these verses preached, you get down to verse 8 and the sermon ends and everyone sort of has this zealous moment of saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I've had an encounter with the Lord. Uh, now he wants to send someone to preach the good news. So what, who will it be? Lord, send me. And we'll, we'll get to where he calls Isaiah to that. So we get this buildup. But the problem is that it's often sort of used to stir up this kind of missionary excitement. But that's not really what the passage is about. And in fact, if you understand what the passage is about, it might quench your zeal a little bit. If you're not firmly rooted in why God calls Isaiah to do what he calls him to do. But first, before we get there, we get this picture. We have this image painted for us by Isaiah of what's going on in the heavenly places. I want you to notice what's taking place. This is very important in the broader context of all of Scripture. We get some historical context first in the year that King Uzziah died. And then Isaiah describes the Lord on the throne far above him. He's looking up to him and he has this massive robe that fills the temple. And then there's these angelic creatures around the throne and each of them has six wings covers their eyes, their faces, and their feet, and they're all worshiping him. And as they're worshiping him, the ground below is rumbling, and the whole place is filled with smoke. It's this magnificent, beautiful thought, isn't it? That we would be able to, to take any glimpse of this. But I want us to be clear here. Who is this? Because the Bible tells us very straightforwardly that no one has ever seen God, or more specifically, the Godhead. So who is this talking about? Who is Isaiah seeing here? Well, he's seeing the God-man. He's seeing the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. Jesus Christ is sitting as king on his throne. So you see, Isaiah is showing us something. In the year that the beloved king Uzziah died, when everyone thought he was their hope, the eternal king, the glorious king of the universe, has now been seen by Isaiah's eyes. It's amazing. Don't hope in this earthly man. Don't hope in an earthly king. You have a real true king who sits on his throne forever and ever. And this description that you get. It may be familiar to you because it reminds us of something else in Scripture in Revelation chapter 4. And there we see John's vision of the throne room. And it's very similar in several ways. Listen to that text. It says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures 
full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now notice a few things from that text. First, most importantly, the Lord is still on His throne. He hasn't moved. He's still there. Now, also, we notice that the throne is still surrounded by these these six-winged creatures. And notice they're singing the very same song. Holy, holy, holy. It is the song that has been sung from all eternity. It is the song that will be sung forever and ever. But do you notice the difference? I I saw this a few years ago, and I've always thought it was absolutely magnificent. In Isaiah's vision, who is doing the singing? It's only the seraphim who are singing holy, holy, holy in Isaiah's vision. In John's vision, every creature in heaven and on earth is now singing holy, holy, holy. Also, in Isaiah's vision, remember, what were the seraphim doing with their wings? They're covering their, their eyes and, and their faces and their, their feet. But now we get to John's vision, and what do we see with all of these winged creatures? They have six wings, but they're not covering anymore. They're spread wide, and it says there's eyes all over on the outside, in the front, in the back, and from within. And so now... When in the past, they couldn't even behold the glory of God, now they're beholding the glory of the Lord in magnificent display, greater than anything they could see before. So what happened? What is the difference from when Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne to when John saw the Lord on his throne? Well, we see it a little bit later in the next chapter of Revelation. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, here it is, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do you see the difference? These heavenly creatures move from being unable to look on the glory of God to now beholding Him with eyes all over their bodies because the Lord Jesus Christ has now been revealed for everyone to see in magnificent display in all of His glory. The glory of God has now been made manifest for all of mankind. The Son of God, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus who was slain on our behalf can now be seen by everyone and the song never changes. When they cannot look upon His glory to now beholding His glory from every angle with as much strength as they are able, the proclamation is the exact same. You, O Lord, are holy, holy, holy. It's beautiful. And there's a lot we can say about these four verses this morning, but here's what I want us to think about in relationship to idolatry. Before we get to anything about idolatry, what does the Lord do first in the text? He reminds us of who He is. 
That's vitally important before we think of false idols that we remember who He is. He reminds us that He is the Lord of lords. There is none like Him, and He is sitting on His throne. He is worthy of worship, and He alone is holy, holy, holy. He is the one who commands all of creation everywhere to worship Him and no other, and to be in His presence, to be in the midst of His glory, and to have no other response is the right response, but to cry out day and night who He is and what He is. We have no question at all right here about what God is. The one and only true God who is worthy, the Lamb, John tells us, who was slain. But when we see that, When Isaiah sees that, what happens to him? Our second point this morning, verses 5 through 7. Seeing God as he truly is results in us seeing ourselves as we truly are. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Well, we can't dwell here long, but it's important for us to see what's going on. Remember back, I said in chapter 5, Isaiah is laying out all of the woes to all of these different people and what they were involved in. But now Isaiah is before the throne, seeing the thrice holy God, and what does he do? Well, no longer is it woe to you. It is now woe to me. Seeing God as the one who is holy, holy, holy drives Isaiah to his knees. It drives him to recognize this really important fact about himself. I am a man of unclean lips. He's now faced with the reality of his own heart. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that, yes, the people of Judah are idolaters. They are mystics. They have fallen away from the Lord in grievous ways. And he had every right as God's prophet to call them out in the midst of all of that. He was doing the Lord's work. But no matter who you are and no matter what the Lord has called you to, when you encounter God in all of his holiness, you are immediately struck with the reality of your own heart. And Isaiah is floored by the holiness of God. And what makes sin so sinful is that it is profane before God. And only God, God alone can cleanse you from that sin. And in these verses, it's exactly what is done in this symbol-laden imagery. This vision of a live coal that's being lifted off the altar where peace offerings were being offered up, the daily offering, morning and evening sacrifices, and it's being lifted up. And now it's placed on the lips of Isaiah where his, from where his own sin has come. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. And so the Lord arranges, based on Isaiah's admission of sin, his profound sense of his deep need for repentance, that he needs a cleansing coal from the altar to be put on his lips. This is true restoration. Look again, verse 7 says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And you know, it's not the angel who did this. It's only the Lord who can do this, right? 
That was simply the Lord's means of doing this. And for Isaiah, it wasn't ultimately because it was coal from a fire, but because the Lord on his throne that he saw was going to eventually come down and live a life to fulfill the law of God and to die a death reserved for sinners and be raised from the dead so that all believe in him might live forever and ever. And it's because that was going to happen that Isaiah could be declared forgiven of his own sin. It is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ that Isaiah had his sins atoned for in the same way that it's the only way that you and I can have our sins atoned for, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this magnificent thing for you and I is that we have access that was once rare, that Isaiah only saw in a vision. We have access to the great throne room of Christ. It was that moment that Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished, that the veil in the temple was torn in two, welcoming all of us in, welcoming us all into the holiest of holies that we might behold the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if eyes were placed upon us from front to back that we might see him from every angle. And so we have access Brethren, we have access to the Lord Jesus on His throne. And when you have access to the throne room, you see God as He truly is, as holy, holy, holy. And when you see God as He truly is, you begin to see yourself as you truly are. And that can only lead either, as we see with Israel, to the hardening of your own heart or to true faith and repentance of your sins. And so maybe you haven't seen God as He truly is if you are here this morning without Christ. That you haven't gotten a true glimpse of the one and only who is holy, holy, holy. Because when you truly encounter God in His holiness, you have no option but to be knocked before Him on your knees, on your face, declaring who He is and who you see yourself to be before Him. All of your false notions of being a good person with good deeds will pass away. And the only response you will have is that what Isaiah had. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, a woman of unclean lips. And the only answer the Lord gives us is that we would have faith in that Lamb who was slain, that we would trust in the Lord who sits on His throne, that we might know life eternal. And here's where all of this leads. Our third point this morning, verses 8 through 13. We become what we worship. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? 
And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken place are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, this is where this passage is often terribly confused and mishandled. Usually, preachers like to deal with this and say, Isaiah saw the Lord, and he saw himself, and when he, when he saw himself and was cleansed of his sin, he was ready to go out and do whatever the Lord called him to do. And so, when the Lord says, whom shall I send? Of course, Isaiah jumps up and says, send me. And then they turn this into a a great big, great commission call for men to go into the mission field or to ministry in some way. And they set aside what he's he's doing uh, in his life and says, send me. But when you read everything in full context, all that I've been laying out from the beginning of the book of Isaiah, you realize that it's not quite what's going on here. In fact, this is very different. In verses 8 through 13... We have God's pronouncement of judgment on Israel's idolatry, which appears to serve as the essential sin representing the whole of the nation's covenantal disobedience. This is vitally important. We can't miss the point of all of this. Now listen, for you and I, if God appeared to us and said to us, listen, when you preach a sermon or when you teach a Sunday school class or lead a Bible study or share the gospel with your neighbor, I would like for you to harden their hearts when you're doing that so that they won't be saved and, in fact, so that they will be destroyed in the end. Now, if you heard that, I think you might assume that you probably want to get a second opinion. You might think maybe you're hallucinating. Maybe I missed something in what was being said. I just want to hear someone else's interpretation of this to make sure I got it right. But you'd be right to think that, right? Because it doesn't square with everything else that we know about the Lord and what He commands. So we need to think about what's going on here in a bigger picture. How in the world do we make sense of of this, this God who is a holy God who cares deeply for His people now saying to Isaiah harden their hearts? How can a holy and righteous God harden people's hearts in order that they would not grow spiritually and be healed, but they would be destroyed? Well, in verses 8 through 10, the Lord does give Isaiah this prophetic commission to deafen and to blind Israel and to cause them to not understand God's word. Isaiah is one who reveres God And so in his reverence for God and his holiness, what that results in is Isaiah's restoration and God choosing him as his prophet. But then God says this, Isaiah, here is my imperative for you. Make the hearts of the people insensitive to my word, even while you are preaching it. Make their ears dull, their eyes dim, and make sure that their hearts do not understand. Is this some cruel lightning bolt of justice from the Lord? How can God be just if this is the case? Well, the answer is that this is not some sort of random capricious act that we haven't seen that it's going to come leading up to chapter 6. Time after time after time for hundreds of years at this point, Israel has sinned and sinned and sinned as idolaters, and now the guilty verdict is being delivered. And what does that look like? 
What the Lord is saying in verses 9 and 10 about the people having ears and not hearing, having eyes and not seeing, and in verse 13 when he mentions the burning tree, that these things are best, mis- uh, best understood as metaphors of idolatry. And they're applied to the disobedient nation in order to emphasize that they would be published, uh, published, they would be punished for their idol worship by being judged in the same way that their idols were ultimately by being destroyed. But the other piece to this reality is that we all become like those things that we worship. In this case, the idolaters were becoming like their idols. They had become spiritually deaf and blind, just like their idols. Their idols made of metal, their idols carved from wood and stone. They didn't have real eyes to see. They didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have hearts to understand. And now the idolaters were becoming just like that. And so there's this ironic taunt going on here. The idols that Israel believed were alive. They were really lifeless idols. They were lifeless objects that would be cursed. And the nation had become the same thing. This is what the psalmist lies out, lays out in Psalm 118. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths that do not speak, eyes that do not see. They have ears that do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet that do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And the psalmist says, Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So what is this commissioning of Isaiah really about? What the Lord is telling Isaiah to do is what he tells every preacher to do. He's simply telling him to preach the truth because the truth is going to be that which actually guarantees their unbelief because their hearts are hardened. They are so blind, they are so hardened, they are so willfully determined to go in another direction that it is the truth of God's Word itself which will guarantee their blindness. It is the truth that guarantees the people will not hear, but they'll just become calloused. Isaiah, preach the truth, and in so doing, you'll make the eyes of these people blind, you'll make their ears deaf, you'll make their hearts calloused. And you can almost imagine Isaiah saying, Okay, Lord, so how long are we talking here? You just want me to do a sermon series, you're going to take care of business, and then we can move on with this. What's your timeline here? A little context would be helpful, but what does God say in verses 11 and 12? Until cities lie without inhabitants. They're lying in absolute waste. The houses don't have any people in them. The land is desolate. The Lord removes the people. They're taken away into captivity to forsaken places. But that's not all. In verse 13, he says, even if only 10% remain after that, I'm going to lay it to waste again to make sure they're taken care of as well. So the driver of the text is the main idea of what we're thinking about this morning. We resemble what we worship, and when we resemble what we worship, the judgment of God is coming. We become the very thing or person or God that we revere either for restoration like we saw with Isaiah who worshipped and adored the one true and living God or for destruction like Israel. God doesn't give us any other options. There is no other option. 
You will worship something, and there is no way around that. Everyone worships something, even if they think they don't. You will. And whatever it is that you worship, you will become just like it or him or her. And we see the contrast. Isaiah wanted to honor the Lord, and in honoring the Lord, he would reflect his holiness, resulting in his restoration. Whereas Israel worshipped idols and reflected their spiritual blindness and deafness, and the result, in the end, was utter ruin. So the text has some very strong language about idolatry, and it's a terrifying thing, brothers and sisters, to fall into the hands of God's judgment, but it is also a very simple answer in principle. How do I escape the judgment of God? I look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is high and lifted up on his throne, who is holy, holy, holy. And by faith, I see him as he truly is, that I might see myself as I truly am, and that I live for him. I live by his commission to do what he calls me to do. We even see this little bit, this hopeful bit at the end of the text here. Verse 13, it's full of judgment, but look again. Look, it also says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. But then he mentions these trees, like a, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is fell. The holy seed is its stump. Do you see it? It's like the Lord, isn't it? Always when he pronounces judgment, he doesn't leave us without hope. Do you see it? The holy seed is its stump. This dynastic stump is is down. Israel has been judged. Jerusalem is down. And yet, and yet, this gets picked up, not right away, but fast forward to chapter 11, and what what do you get? This one verse in chapter 11, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. And as you get into chapter 11, you see this glorious vision, all of this judgment for idolatry, all of this faithlessness, all this hardness of heart, and yet we get this glorious vision of the eschaton, of a new heaven and a new earth, which ultimately, it says, they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you see, there is hope in the end. There is hope in the form of a new life springing from this dead stump as the messianic king who would come forth 700 years later. But brothers and sisters, the glorious reality for us is that we don't have to wait seven years because 2,000 years ago he came. And so the call from the text for all of us, as we think about who God is and who we are in relationship to who God is, And our tendency, our own heart's tendency to turn to idols, recognizing that we become like that very thing we worship, the Lord offers us a warning. Turn from idols. Idols will leave you deaf. They will leave you blind. They will leave you without understanding. Turn away from your idols and turn faithfully to Christ. The more you draw yourself into worship with Christ the more you become just like him. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what we desire, is it not? That in the end, as we receive the great gift that's rewarded to us, we will be fully like Christ, and that we are high and exalted and glorified above all that God has created, reigning and ruling as kings and princes forever and ever. That's the promise. Let's strive to live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious 
magnificent, holy word and the Lord Jesus Christ to whom it points. And so we pray this morning, O God, that as we hear your word, as we're reminded yet again of the Lord Jesus who is holy, 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 that we would delight in him with all of our hearts. As we're reminded yet again of who we are in light of who he is. Lord, may you put a greater disdain in our hearts for our own tendencies toward idolatry, that we would seek to crush the idols in our lives and live faithfully unto Christ. And Lord, as you send us out into this world, may we be faithful, no matter what, not to turn to idols, not to turn to these things that we so easily resemble when we embrace them, but to continue to commune with Christ, that our communion would be sweeter and sweeter day by day. And as we commune with Christ, as we become more like him, as we proclaim the truth by the lives we live and the words that we speak, that your word would do your will, that you would crush idols, that you would mute the naysayers and deceivers, and that you would make much of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name on all the earth. And we pray you would do all of this for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.